0: This is Jim Fleming. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Stewart Heights or more about our class, or if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can do so at teachings.jim314.com. Enjoy the lesson. As you see on the uh, table in front of you, you get some handouts regarding Romans 8. And Albert is here, so just in case I fall out, He's ready to take over. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your family, Lord, that you call us into. I pray, Lord, as my mom would pray over me, she's here this morning, I thank you for that. Lord, through your spirit, fill my mouth with useful stuff And shut it when I've said enough. I pray, Lord, that you will open your word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this week we've had some fun. Um, The idea of following George Jackson and teaching a class was daunting. And so, by Jim following me next week, he'll have a much easier job than what I'm doing right now. The guy nailed it, didn't he? The Holy Spirit flowing through George Jackson last week. Just, man, mind blown. Uh, So we were shooting some text back and forth, and I suggested to Jim, hey, you know, what if I go with uh, the title of the lesson this week? Romans 8, your premier predestination destination. And wisely, Jim said, No. So you learn a lot by getting ready to teach Sunday school. One thing you learn is how inadequate for the task you really are. Um, another thing, when you choose Romans 8, you realize how big that is. And so this is going to be a 50-mile overview, because you could spend years in Romans 8. And uh, Albert, you've not completed that book yet that you're writing on Romans 8 at this point, have you? No. 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 So that's going to take a while, too. So, So... Thinking that you could stand up here as a rookie teaching this text and get the whole thing, you would be deluded. Um, Another thing you find out prepping for a lesson is that, man, y'all might not get anywhere near as much out of this as me, because you just, it's been hammering me all week, well, two weeks. Um. And you you look inside yourself and you see where Paul is struggling in Romans 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And you see things in your life that aren't consistent with the scriptures. And you try and you you fall before the Lord and you say, help me. And that's the best that you can do. Because our best is as filthy rags before him. And when... We allow the Holy Spirit to come in and work with us, work in us, work through us, work on us, put us on the ground, mill us out, squash us. That's when the richness comes out. That's when your soul and your body start to get together and say, this really is real. This is serious. This is life. This is not a game. This is practice for what's later to come, for the glory that's later to come. Then you realize how the devil doesn't want the word preached. And you sit down at your computer in the morning of the day that you are preparing the lesson and it crashes. And it sits there stuck. You stare at it and it stares back. And you try to type things in there from the word and it goes, uh And you realize that maybe there's something in here that the devil doesn't want people to hear. And being Romans 8, and if you've ever read Romans 8, there's a lot. But the best thing that you can learn in preparing for a lesson is that it truly is all about Jesus. So I chose All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Romans 8. It is one of those all encompassing chapters in the Bible. And part of that title comes from Robert Fulgham's work, uh, the book that I still have. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. And his credo on life, and I, as a teenager, I had it on, posted on the, on the wall in my room. So he writes, all I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some, and think some, and draw, and paint, and sing, and dance, and play, and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup? The roots go down, and the plant goes up, and nobody really knows how or why, but we're all like that. Goldfish, and hamsters, and white mice, and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. So do we. And then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned? The biggest word of all, look. Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and politics and equality and sane living. Take any one of those items and extrapolate it into sophisticated adult terms and apply it to your family life or your work or government or your world and it holds true and clear and firm. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then lay down with our blankies for a nap. (laughs) Or if all governments had as a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and to clean up their own mess. And it is still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. Now that's not bad for a Unitarian parish minister, and the concept here is that of one place that teaches everything you need. Nice try, Robert Fulgen, but I prefer Romans 8, so let's read that. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the, bondage, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory with which with let's start there again. Podcast. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope and for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. Who is even at the right hand of God, who makes, also makes intercessions for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this week I was enjoying reading Ray, Ray Stedman's commentary. And he was a pastor out in California for over 40 years, preached more than 800 sermons, and authored 28 books. So he's kind of wordy. One of the things he said in here that made me enjoy it right off the bat was, uh, he says, but first I want to point out that you have to ignore the division between chapters 7 and 8. I believe that the text of the scriptures is inspired by God, breathed out by him. But I believe that the chapter divisions were put in by the devil. (laughs) Many times they come right at the place where they actually obscure truth. Sometimes these divisions break the continuity of thought and take it out of context. Then we may miss something tremendously important. That is certainly true here. The first two verses of chapter 8 ought to be linked with the closing verse of chapter 7. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only reason this verse does not open with but is because some clown put a big eight there and that has thrown off all the translators. <laughs> so, reading it that way then. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But, and there's your blank. Um, Anybody that's blanker, filler-outers, there is a blank this morning. There's actually three or four, but that's the first one. But, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, like comedian Mark Lowry quoting his favorite verse, And it came to pass, didn't come to stay, came to pass. I like passages in the Bible where God steps in with the word but. And for an example, Romans 5:8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So David Guzik comments here, the simple declaration of no condemnation comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. Since God the Father does not condemn Jesus, neither can the Father condemn those who are in Jesus. They are not condemned, they will not be condemned, and they cannot be condemned. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation, and in between, there is no defeat. Our position in Jesus Christ is the reason for our standing of no condemnation. And it talks about, in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. Verses the physical law. And Guzik comments here, the law can do many things. He's talking about the laws, Moses' law, Ten Commandments, that law. The law could not defeat sin. It could only detect sin. The law can do many things. It can guide us, teach us, and tell us about God's character. But the law cannot give energy to our flesh. It can give us a standard, but it can't give us the power to please God. Only Jesus can give us that power, and only Jesus can defeat sin, and he did that through his work on the cross. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul carefully chose his words here. Uh, Look at the likeness of sinful flesh. God sends his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Indicates that Jesus was not sinful flesh, but he identified with it entirely. We could not say that Jesus came in sinful flesh because he was sinless. We could not say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh because he was really human. We could not say, oh, here we go. We can say that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh because although he was human, he was not sinful in himself. So simply put, Jesus is our substitute. And you can put a blank in there, write that down. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus was treated as a sinner so we can be treated as righteous Verse 5 is key. The struggle that Paul is having goes back to chapter 7. And again, remember, the two are connected. The whole Bible is connected, but remember these two chapters. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And that's where he says, what a wretched man that I am. But that's where we get to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The key term here, underline it, set your mind. And a quote from Guzik here, the mind is the strategic battleground where the flesh and the spirit fight. The first time I was invited to teach this class fell on Father's Day about two weeks after my dad died. And Jim did give me the parachute. He's like, hey, if you don't, don't want to teach, I understand fully. I mean, what a traumatic time. And I told him then, I, think, I said, I think it's good. I'm getting more out of the word now than I ever did. And it really came to light in new and fresh ways. And so for this week, it's as rich for me then as, you know, now as it was then. But one of the things I said in that class was that dad gave me this passage as I struggled through teen issues, similar to what my own son is going through right now. He gave me Philippians 4, 8, and 9, which says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things or set your mind on these things. The things which you learned and received and saw and heard in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So we look at verses 6 through 14. let Let's get down to 14 here. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And David Guzik says, it's only fitting that the sons of God should be led by the Spirit of God. Make note of this. However, we should not think that being led by the Spirit is a precondition to being a son of God. Instead, we become sons first, and then the Spirit of God leads us. Paul didn't say, as many as go to church, these are the sons of God. He didn't say, as many as read their Bible, these are the sons of God. He didn't say, as many as are patriotic Americans, these are the sons of God. He didn't say, as many as take communion, these are the sons of God. In this text, the test for sonship is whether or not a person is led by the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit lead us? We're led by guidance. We're led by drawing. We're led by governing authority. We are led... As we cooperate with the leading, it does not say as many are driven by the Spirit of God. No, the devil is a driver. And when he enters into men or into hogs, he drives them furiously. Remember how the whole herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea? Whenever you see a man, this is Spurgeon speaking here, whenever you see a man fanatical and wild, whatever spirit is in him is not the Spirit of Christ. So where does the Holy Spirit lead us? He leads us to repentance. He leads us to think little of self and much of Jesus. He leads us into the truth. He leads us into love. He leads us into holiness. He leads us into usefulness. And then verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, This is really cool. There's a couple concepts here. Guzik talks about under Roman adoption, because this is the book of the Romans, to the Romans, but under their laws, under Roman adoption, the life and standing of the adopted child changed completely. The adopted son lost all rights in his old family and gained new rights in his new family. The old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out, with all debts being canceled with nothing from his past counting against him anymore. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Stedman says here, too, the closest and most intimate relationship you can have is the awareness that you belong to a father. With the father's arms around you, a father's heart concerned for you, a father's wisdom planning for you, and a father's love protecting and guarding you. If you have ever sensed the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of Jesus, it is because the Spirit of God has awakened your heart to sense that you belong to the family of God. So in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's important because under Jewish law, as Guzik points out, At the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything had to be established. And that was out of Deuteronomy. There are two witnesses to our salvation, our own witness and the witness of the Spirit. So verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We looked at Colossians 124 a month back. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And I talked about that Maasai warrior who was saved, and he went back to the village to witness, and he was rejected and turned away and at points beaten. And the last time he was beaten, it was, he, he could do nothing to save himself. He was brought in by the villagers. And what they saw in that Maasai warrior was that filling up in his flesh, completing the sufferings of Christ. So that they had somebody they could witness in front of them who cared enough to go to death for them. A picture of Christ. Guzik, because we're in Christ, we're also called to share in his suffering. God's children are not immune from trials and suffering. Y'all just need to know there's a ton in here. This is kind of cool. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Stedman writes here, The word in the original language which is translated eager expectation is an interesting word. It's a word that pictures a man standing and waiting for something to happen, craning his head forward. Ever been to a concert? Getting ready for the artist to come out? They step out on stage, the place goes nuts. All right? Nothing compared to when God reveals the sons of God. And creation, it says, is, is the one that's standing there waiting for it to happen. Creation, remember, in the garden, the lion lay down with the lamb. Animals didn't fight with each other. Everything was at peace. And then sin entered the picture. So it's talking here as creation remembers what it was like without sin, and it's waiting for a time again when it will be without sin. It's waiting for Jesus to step back on the stage, coming again. Waiting, craning. Where is he? Can't wait. He's coming again. Creation itself is waiting. Why? Because it was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This is Christ subjecting creation in hope. There was a plan from the beginning. There's creation, the fall of man, Christ comes, the perfect sacrifice, church age, this living out of the faith, and eventually coming back again to set things right. Creation is waiting for it eagerly. And you see all the groaning going on here. Uh, Let's skip down to verse 27. Now he who searches the... No. No, 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 no. 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit is groaning. So there's three groans in this passage. Nature's groaning, we're groaning, and the Spirit is groaning with words that cannot be uttered. So this passage helps us to understand prayer. The apostle says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We lack wisdom. I want to point out that immediately this it's not an encouragement to cease praying. Uh, Paul tells us that the praying of the Spirit is done with groans which words cannot express. Now the tongues, okay, so we talk about speaking in tongues. Might as well. We're going to talk about predestination too. <laughs> tongues are words. They're the words of other languages. These are groans of the Spirit, so deep and impossible to verbalize that we can't say anything at all. We just feel deeply. Paul says when that happens, that's the Spirit of God praying. The Spirit is putting our prayer into a form which God the Father who searches the heart understands. The Spirit is asking for something concerning the situation that we're trying to pray about. And what's the Spirit asking for? Look in verse 28. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So Stedman says here, never separate this verse from the previous two verses. The Apostle is saying that what the Spirit prays for is what happens. The Spirit prays according to the mind of God, and the Father answers by bringing into our lives the experiences that we need. He sends into the life of those for whom we are concerned the experience that they need no matter what they may be. So our lives and those of whom we're concerned. Now, does that mean that even the trials and tragedies that happen to us are answered answer from the Father to the praying of the Spirit? So these things happen because the Spirit, which is in you, prayed for and asked for the, that the Father allow them to happen because you or somebody close to you needs it. We don't always see the reason why. That's not our job. Our job is to keep praying and to be conformed to be like Jesus. So the joys and the unexpected blessings and the unusual things that happen to you are also the result of the Spirit's praying. The Spirit is praying that these things will happen. He's voicing the deep concern of God himself for your needs and mine. Out of this grows the assurance that no matter what happens, it will work together for good. This verse does not tell us that everything that happens to us is good. It does say that whether the situation is bad or good, it will work together for good for you, if you are one who is loved and called by God. And what a difference that makes. For whom he foreknew, this is verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, me here, predestination has absolutely nothing to do with going to hell. In the word of God, predestination is never related to that in any way whatsoever. Predestination has only to do with believers. It simply tells us that God has selected beforehand the goal towards which he is going to move every one of us who believes in Christ. That goal is conformity to the character of Christ. Everything that happens to us focuses on that one supreme purpose. His primary concern is our character. God knows that we can never develop the character he wants without times of difficulty and trial and suffering. That's why suffering is an inevitable part of the picture. It helps us remember that God's primary objective is not that we be happy all the time. He's not that kind of a father. Rather, his primary objective is that we be holy, which means whole, complete, complete. All that we are intended to be, functioning as God intended to function, like Jesus. We've all noticed, this is still Stedman here, he's wordy, like I said. We have all noticed that God is forming a lot of characters. In fact, he is going to end up with a whole heaven full of them. But one distinctive thing about those characters is that they all are like Jesus. They all have different personalities, but they all have the same basic fundamental character. Loving, gracious, gentle, wholesome, helpful, compassionate. All the things that mark that magnificent life of Jesus, interpreted in a thousand and one different ways in our human lives. That is the wonder and glory of God. That is what he has predestined. There should be many brethren, and Jesus should be the firstborn among many just like him. I love what Harry Ironside shares in this. He used to tell of a man who gave his testimony telling how God had sought him and found him and how God loved him and called him and saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. Tremendous testimony to the glory of God. After the meeting, one rather legalistic brother took him aside and said, You know, I appreciate all that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God, and you should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, the man said, I apologize. I'm sorry. I really should have mentioned that. My part was running away. And his part was running after me until he found me. So, what sh- then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not, with him also freely, give us all things? He gave us Christ, give us all things. And who brings a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is risen. So that the power of sin died with Christ. And now we live in the power of the Spirit. So that in verse 37 we can say, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So how is the Christian more than a conqueror? He overcomes with a greater power. The power of Jesus. He, she, overcomes with a greater motive the glory of Jesus. He overcomes with a greater victory, losing nothing even in battle. He overcomes with a greater love, conquering enemies with love and and converting persecutors with patience. So I could read verses 38 and 39, but instead I'm going to read this quote from Ruth Harms Culkin, who wrote, God, I may fall flat on my face. I may fail until I get old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you will hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all his braggadocio, cannot distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't. Disappointment can't. Anguish can't. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, can't. The loss of my dearest love can't. Death can't. Life can't. Riots, war, insanity, unidentity, hunger, neurosis, disease, none of these things, nor all of them heaped together, can budge the fact that I am dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. So if you get nothing else from this lesson, um, take away this it's all about Jesus and the second line there set your mind on Jesus so you feel feeling broken this morning good because you were never whole and complete in yourself and if you're having an ident- identity crisis this morning let me help you with that you are not your own you have been bought with a price You are no longer condemned to serve sin and the devil. You have been eternally secured in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm sure that there are many here today who have been struggling against very powerful forces in their lives. Many who have been wanting to be free from destructive things. Lord, thank you that you have found a different way out. Thank you that the way out is not by forcing ourselves to be different, but by seeing that we already are different. We have been cleansed and purified and made whole in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our life, and we belong to him and always will. What a difference that is. Help us to believe it and act that way. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>